in the order of the exposition of the doctrines of salvation, you've come to Lord's Day 46 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which we find on page 560 and 61 of our Book of Praise. So let's read together what the Church has summarized and confessed there in Lord's Day 46. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father, to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our earthly fathers, than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Why is there added in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner and to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. In response to the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing Psalm 130, stanzas 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's often our experience that prayer is hard work, and rightly so. Prayer, like anything else that is beautiful, is not something learned overnight. Now, in the history of the church, there have been some master teachers on prayer. I think of Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, each of them wrote at length on prayer in many places. But none of them developed their teaching on prayer based first and foremost on their own experiences. For each of them, their teaching and personal practice took its cue from the master of prayer, the Lord Jesus. And so what a blessing it is that we and our desire to then master the art of praying may devote our attention once again in the catechism to the Lord's prayer. The Lord includes everything from our daily bread to the Lord's return, your kingdom come. It recognizes God's glory, hallowed be your name, and our greatest need, forgive us our debts. Christ gave this prayer to us as a key to unlock the riches of prayer. Well, before we proceed to the various petitions of this prayer, we need to first concern ourselves, ourselves with its address, our Father in heaven. For these first words are essential to the prayer. They set the tone for all that follows. They point up for us that communion with God is possible. The communion we enjoy with our Father is only possible for us because of our Savior. Calvin said that to call God Father is to pray in Christ's name. This address is rooted in the work and the life of Christ. 
We know the Father through him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so Christ, who has opened our access to God, teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven. I bring you God's word in this way this afternoon. Christ teaches us how to address God rightly. We see that our address expresses God's fatherly mercy, heavenly majesty, and almighty power. First, we see that our address expresses God's fatherly mercy. Prayer needs to begin in the right manner. And the ticket to starting in the right manner is having a right understanding of the nature of prayer. Of course, in Lord's Day 45, we started talking about prayer. And there we considered questions like why we must pray, how we must pray, what we must pray. But our Lord's Day this afternoon gives us the opportunity to reflect more deeply on the question, what is prayer? Aside from the fact that it is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us, what is the nature of prayer? What are we doing in prayer? Well, consider then question 120. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? Address. With that word, Prayer is immediately characterized as speaking with God, conversing with God. What that means is we're not the only ones talking. We are in conversation. Praying is not strictly, listen, Lord, for your servant is speaking, which is often our estimation of prayer. No, prayer is in the first place the opposite Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. For us to offer a prayer pleasing to God and heard by him, we must, above all else, be able to be quiet. In that quietness, we listen. So prayer is simply but profoundly this, a personal response to the knowledge of God. God speaks to me in his word, and in prayer I seek to respond through the Spirit to God and what I may know of him. God speaks, I answer. Praying is always a reaction to an echo of the word of God. If God doesn't first speak to you about who he is, how you may address him, what you may ask of him, etc., then your prayer life would be nothing more than vanity. When you pray earnestly, you will pray with words generally borrowed from Scripture. In that way, God's word to you and your words to God are united Now this truth then of our answering God's instruction is caught in the first, in this question, in the first question of our catechism here. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? Christ commanded us to utter this address in response to God. 
Maybe it sounds to you like the catechism, like the authors here made a mistake. Perhaps you would like to see a different word in this question. Why has Christ allowed us to address God as our Father? For yes, indeed, it is certainly a great privilege we enjoy. There's no privilege you and I can think of that's greater than to call the creator of heaven and earth, the God above all gods, Father. That's a privilege that even sets us above the angels because they are merely servants. They may not call God Father. But we, sinful, mortal people, may do that. Certainly a privilege. And yet the catechism's choice of words is faithful to Scripture. Christ has commanded us, for at least this reason, we enjoy a covenant bond with God. And so if we say that we are unworthy to use the name Father in prayer, that sounds pious, but by that we empty out, we gut the work of Christ. Christ came to die to restore a relation with our Father. That's one of the many benefits we now enjoy. So we cannot now strike that benefit from God's hand. And so Christ commands us to address God as Father. The closest relation that we have with someone in authority is found in that word Father. A judge is your worship, a policeman is officer, a family friend may be uncle or aunt, but there's only one man in the world you call father. And that's what the Lord Jesus says you need to call God. And so we see the height of God's mercy in that. And a reading from Matthew 6 elaborates on that. That's where we came across Christ explaining three religious acts. Giving to the needy, praying, fasting. For all three, we read, he is rebuking the doctrine and the life of the Pharisees, the hypocrites. Verse 2, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Verse 5, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Verse 16, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. The Lord Jesus speaks out against such acts of righteousness. The Pharisees, you may know, thought that through these acts, they could earn a slice of their salvation. Man's efforts, in other words, instead of God's fatherly mercy came to the foreground in salvation. Well, in that context, their praying was so obviously very wrong. It was devoid of any reverence and trust of a child toward his father. Christ rails against this, especially since the Pharisees were so prominent in the community. People would take their cue from them. Christ protests this public display 
And strikingly, without missing a beat, he goes on to mention the pagans. Keep on babbling, thinking they will be heard because of their many words. You know what that would have said to the Pharisees? I'm afraid there's no difference between your prayers and the prayers of pagans. By your lofty words and your pompous attitude, you want God's attention. You want to impress God so that he'll grant you your desire for your own purposes rather than you approaching him in faith and reverence. Look how hard, brothers and sisters, Christ comes down on them. They are the leaders. They should know better. Christ says, don't be like them. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. You cannot impress God. You have to know your God. Pray with the biblical knowledge of who you are before God. Believe you're God's child. Believe he is your heavenly father. Of course, we all have certain thoughts about fathers. Thoughts based largely on our experience with our own earthly father. We cannot help going in that direction when Christ describes our relationship to God as that of father-child. And some of us might have a father who is or was very caring for us, very gracious. Others among us, however, might have a lot of bad memories of our dad. A dad who was distant uninterested in us. But when the Lord Jesus instructs us to address God as our Father, he does not want us to fill that term with the baggage of our experiences with our earthly Father. For your heavenly Father knows your inmost being, your very heart, And never does he visit you with trials that are unnecessary. He does nothing with the intention of exasperating you. He disciplines you. And that for your good. So we address him as our father. Perhaps you've come across the idea at some point that our savior was being revolutionary when he instructed his disciples to address God as Father. The Jews would have been grossly offended that this prophet was introducing a much too familiar and therefore irreverent way of calling upon God. Such an idea is rubbish. It's false. This is not a new, but a very old name. Christ is not being revolutionary. Any honest review of the Old Testament will show that addressing God as our Father was by no means uncommon. All the way back in Deuteronomy 32, Song of Moses, we read in verse 6, Is he not your Father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Even, you see, even before Israel arrived at the promised land, they knew God was Father to them. But about much later, Isaiah 64, where the exiles call upon their God. 
But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter and we are all the work of your hand. Israel is in exile and she still confesses God with that most intimate name, pleading him, as you read on there, to forgive and restore them. Yes, to be their father. So you see the faithfulness of our Savior to God's word, even when it comes to his teaching on prayer. Did it strike you, congregation, how often in that passage we read together, Jesus refers to God as Father? If you're taking notes, it's verse 1, 4, 6, 8, 9, 14, 15. That's wonderful. Christ is illustrating there is no one more able to care for you or willing to care for you than your Father in heaven. Christ's work on Golgotha is central in our confession's explanation of this wonderful address. Answer 120. God has become our Father through Christ. And you understand well that there was no one who more forcefully and vividly felt the agony of a distant and withdrawn father than Jesus Christ. God totally withdrew his favor from his son. That was so heart-wrenching, soul-destroying, that Christ couldn't even cry out, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? But my God, my God. Christ was denied. And he denied himself, the Father's throne so that he could place the name Father on our lips and have our God as close to us as ever. In the sacrifice of Christ, congregation, we see God's fatherly mercy and compassion the clearest. We there became sons of God through that shedding of Christ's blood. We now have access to our Father in prayer. And all that the Father would grant his Son, Christ, he also grants to us for the sake of Christ. Yes, that's important for us to keep in mind. For like the Pharisees, we can think too much of ourselves in prayer. We can think that sometimes the Lord answers prayer because we love him or because we expressed our needs so clearly, and that may be true, but it's a mistake. Something similar actually to the well-behaved older son of the parable. His father should be proud of him, not his prodigal brother, but the older son forgot one thing. He was no son at all. He was a slave in the house. He worked like a hired hand, never completely happy. There was no childlike, but slavish fear. So we have to be careful. As soon as we think that our status as a child of God is the basis for his answer and favor, we've thereby actually handed over our right 
to be his children. No, the basis for answer is not found in our being children, but in God's fatherhood in Jesus Christ. We will never pray in this life with perfect holiness. And we will, we will never approach God with such perfect childlike reverence and fear and trust. So we have no basis in ourselves for addressing God or for expecting an answer from him. That we are now children of his love, we owe to Christ. He restored our relationship. We now enjoy the Father's mercy. And so Christ commands us to call him our Father. Whenever you pray, believe he is your Father merciful and gracious. There are many times when I sin against him, but he will always be my father. And like the father of the prodigal son, God will accept a broken and contrite heart. Forgive me, Father. I'm not worthy to be yours. God will accept you in Jesus Christ in fatherly mercy. And yet our Savior did not leave the address with just an intimate name. So that takes us to our second point where we consider the heavenly majesty also found in that address. Why is there added in heaven? We confess that these words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. What's happening? Does it seem now as if Christ is canceling out all that is intended with the words, our Father? As if his one hand is taking back what was given by the other. Our Father, that's so intimate, so near. Heaven, it's far away. So distant so formal God is in heaven but he doesn't show himself sometimes when we want him to intervene he keeps himself hidden isn't that what the psalmists cry out do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble incline your ear to me Psalm 102 verse 2 what benefit do we get from our father when in heaven seems to cancel all that out. Well, seems is, of course, the right word. Because the reality is that this is not so. This reasoning points out that earthly thinking about God is in our blood. That's how Greeks and Romans, all the heathen nations conceived of their gods, they were made in the image of men. The ancient myths you may know are full of gods acting according to the base attitudes of those who worship them. Well, that worldly kind of thinking can creep into us as well. It is sort of in our blood. We are always ready to judge God by our human standards. And it shows up when we accuse God of being biased. Look at how he favors the one family above the other. Look at what he gives to that one family, but he withholds from the other. 
And this doesn't apply just to material goods. We adopt early earthly thoughts when we think of wisdom, status, even faith. How unfair, how unjust God is that he gives it to the one and not really to the other. But the words at the end of the address in heaven are a corrective. They are intended to bring an end to human thoughts about God. They're intended to bring our expectations to where they should be. The heavens are pure. God whose throne is in heaven is so pure in all he does and all that he leaves undone. That's what we must think of when our thoughts go to heaven. God is infinitely high above us. And as Isaiah writes, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. So if the Lord's ways and his thoughts are above ours, that means he's infinitely greater than we can comprehend. He's in a league of his own. Actually, that's really rather a poor and still pathetically human way of describing his greatness. God himself said through Isaiah, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Chapter 46, verse 9 and 10. Human earthly thoughts and descriptions don't come close to capturing our eternal Father's majesty. Our God more often emphasized his total uniqueness from us by speaking of his eternal presence. In God, there is nothing earthly, nothing small, nothing petty, nothing finite. In other words, we cannot fathom his ways and his thoughts, but every single one of them has infinite meaning. God's design was figured out long before you and I ever gave thought to anything. With God, everything is great, heavenly, exalted, perfect. So God is not fickle in whom he chooses, whom he wants. And he's not unjust, and he's not unfair. God is great in heaven. Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs and holds the kings and rulers and their nations in derision. So when you address God, you must consider his heavenly majesty. That means we may never speak with him as if he's our buddy or our pal or even, God forbid, our lover. And our praying should not be sloppy, but well thought out. He is God in heaven. He created and he sustains us. There is no place for being flippant or casual before him. How unsearchable his judgments 
and his paths beyond tracing out. So we come to our final point this afternoon where we see in that address is also expressed God's almighty power. Brothers and sisters, you could say that as Father, God will help us. He's merciful. And as the heavenly exalted one, he is able to help. Those words in heaven teach us, as we confess, to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. He has heaven for his throne. And what comfort that brings. All powers are subject to him, subordinate to him. He is in total control everywhere and always. Natural disasters are always under his reign. Governments are under his thumb. One word from him is sufficient, and even his enemies must obey him, whether they want to or not. Nothing, not the powers of evil or the forces of nature, is too great for his omnipotence. Our catechism, however, is not actually referring to those kinds of things. Rather, it teaches us here that we may expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. He's promised to provide for us, to protect us. That was spoken at our baptism to us. When you were baptized into the name of God the Father, he promised to provide you with all good and avert all evil or turn it to your benefit. By faith, then, you can never expect too much from his almighty power. You are to believe that what God says he will do, he will. That trust toward God should be basic to your prayer. God will much less deny you what you ask of him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. As the Lord Jesus said, If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Our catechism this afternoon, you see, is actually very explicit in its terminology. Answer 121 says, we may expect And we ought not miss that. Praying isn't the end of it. When we have made our request to God and the answer doesn't come immediately, we must wait and expect an answer. Here we have to think of the example of Elijah. James writes in his letter that Elijah was a man just like us. The Lord God withheld rain from the land for three years, and then he told Elijah, I will send rain out on the land. Elijah didn't doubt this word. He relayed the message to King Ahab, but he did more. He bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees to pray. Elijah, you see, had received a promise And therefore, he could have an expectation. He told his servant, go out, look toward the sea. There's nothing there, the servant said after looking. 
Remember how many times he kept saying that? Six more times. Heavens didn't change, but Elijah doesn't become despondent. He persevered. Go, keep looking. The Lord has promised, after all. He waited until finally, at the seventh time, the servant came back and reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Waiting may be, and it often is, a difficult task. The devil wants to convince you that God's busy with somebody else, doesn't hear you. Your praying is in vain. Temptation can become severe, and yet wait. Wait expectantly for the answering of your prayers. God often lets us wait to teach us patience and forbearance. But he also wants our requests to be in harmony with his word. Remember, in prayer we echo God's word. So ensure your expectations are scriptural, rooted in God's wonderful promises. Brothers and sisters, can you see already that the address of your prayers is so rich and beautiful? It's a prayer in itself, really. This address, uttered from the heart, quiets the restless heart. It gives strength to the weary. It repeats God's word after him. My soul becomes like a weaned child within me. For I pray, our Father in heaven, amen.